the Siege of New Hampshire series by Mick Rowland. Book Four, Susan's Bridge. Chapter Eight, Dark Waters. Sheets of heavy rain stung her face as she clung to the boat's upper deck railing. She tried to shout to her crewmates that a huge wave was rising behind them. No one could hear her over the roar of the wind. The boat rolled on its side as the black wave loomed overhead. She was in the water. Her coat sleeve was caught on the railing. She fought and struggled, but couldn't get free. The huge boat was on top of her, pulling her deeper into the black depths. She couldn't breathe. Susan sat up suddenly. Her own scream woke her. It was still dark, but dry. She panted, but noticed that she could breathe air. The water was gone. A small blue-white LED lantern hung above her. Are you okay? asked a voice. It was Justine. Susan, what is it? asked Kayla's voice. It took Susan a moment to process what was reality and what was a dream. The boat and the wave seemed more real at first, but Justine and the lantern began to prevail. I think I... it must have been a dream, Susan said. She laid back on her improvised bed and tried to will her pounding heart to slow down. It was just a dream, she told herself. Only a dumb dream. She reached her arm out to the makeshift nightstand for her jar of olives. Her fingers closed around it. She replayed the memories of her and Martin on their trek out of Boston. He was always concerned about her. She wanted the memories of Martin to push out any remnants of the bad dreams. The boat and the wave were gone, but the room felt too small. The fact that there was a log cabin above her began to bother her. They were living in a dirt hole. It was like a grave. What if the cabin fell in? She would be buried beneath the rubble, in total darkness. Would anyone find her? Her breathing sped up. She sat up and held her jar in both hands. Happier moments could find no foothold. The image of the ceiling collapsing on her wouldn't leave her mind. In the dim light, she could see the tunnel leading back to the lodge. The black hole seemed like the throat of a huge earthen beast. Why would anyone voluntarily go in there? She spotted the ladder leading up to the cabin above. Escape. What are you doing? asked Justine. I, I can't stay down here, said Susan. She pulled on her snow pants. Can't stay? asked Kayla. Where are you going? Uh, I'm going to sleep up in the cabin. Susan zipped up her heavy coat. It's freezing up there, said Kayla. Maybe, but I can't stay down here. Susan gathered up her sleeping bag, blankets, and backpack. Mr. Davis says we are not supposed to be in the buildings, said Justine. The drones might see the heat, he said. Then I'll just have to be very careful, said Susan. But I, I can't stay down here. With her gear stuffed under her arm, she climbed the crude board ladder to the floor joists above. She slowly pushed up the trap door and peered across the dusty wooden floor. Three dirty windows glowed with a faint light of a moon above the clouds. The room seemed almost brightly lit compared to their dark cellar. 
Susan forced her armload of bedding through the small trapdoor. The lower bunk on the central divider seemed like the best place to try and settle in. It was far from any exterior walls, so she shouldn't be projecting any heat for the drones to see. That bunk was also near the cabin door, if she had to get out quickly. Justine peeked up through the trap door. Mr. Davis was quite clear that I have to, said Susan. I can't stay down there. I'll be careful to stay away from the walls. But it's totally freezing up there, protested Kayla's voice from below. Thanks for your concern, guys. Uh, I'll, I'll be okay. Uh, try to get back to sleep. I don't know, began Justine. I'll be all right, reassured Susan. I'll see if I can sleep up here. Justine lowered the trap door with a soft whine of protest. Susan could see her breath as she worked to lay out her blankets and sleeping bag on the bare straps of the lower bunk. Once inside her sleeping bag, she huddled into a ball, peeking out through a little breathing hole at the zipper. She fell asleep, peering at her jar, silhouetted by the window. Susan woke with a jump. It was the dream again. All she could remember was falling into the black water. A few deep, slow breaths calmed her racing heart. Brighter blue light filtered through the cabin windows. Dawn was near. The faint sound of thumping filtered up through the floorboards. Justine and Kayla were stirring in the cellar below. She heard the trapdoor scrape as it opened. Miss Susan, whispered Justine. Are you awake up here? I'm up, Justine, just getting dressed. Oh, that is good. I was worried about you. The drones passed a little while ago. It is almost time for breakfast. Coming. Susan laced up her boots. Was there any news from last night? None so far, Justine replied. It felt good to be fully dressed in her winter gear again. Wearing only base layers felt like being naked. Susan got halfway down the cabin ladder before a wave of anxiety swelled up inside her. The room felt too small and dark, like climbing down into a bottomless manhole. The air seemed thin. The floor was too far away. She tried to will her foot to step down another rung, but it refused. She felt hot. Her hands trembled on the ladder. What's the matter? asked Kayla. Forget something? Um, no. Uh, it's just that I... Susan was not sure what to say. She wasn't sure what she felt, only that she couldn't go down any farther. She climbed out quickly. I don't think I can come to breakfast, Susan said down the hole. Even if she had made it to the floor, the thought of moving through the tunnels made her shudder. Once up in the cabin, sitting on the edge of her bunk, she was able to settle down. Why am I being so silly? I've been through the tunnels many times before. Things were different now. The assault had broken something inside her. She didn't know what, exactly, but it was clearly broken. That tiny, helpless feeling she had while pinned beneath the tall man wouldn't leave her. Even though he was gone, he had paid the price for his crimes, but she still felt broken. That second soldier's face haunted her. He had done nothing to her. She recalled trying to reassure Martin that killing that highway robber didn't make him a psychopath. But was she? She aimed her gun at Owen, too, simply because he grabbed her arm. 
she might have killed him. Was all of this turning her into a psychopath? Had she ruined Operation Longbow by shooting those men? Everyone had worked so hard to repair that old bridge. Others risked capture themselves to drive the trucks to infiltrate hostile territory. Had saving her own life ruined things for everyone else? Would it have been better for everyone else if she had simply died quietly? Dark thoughts swirled through her mind. Is Susan? called Justine from the trapdoor. Huh? Susan felt vaguely impatient at the interruption of her gloom. I have some good news. Mr. Chern said that the other soldiers found the dead men, but did not look like they were searching. He wants to advance our schedule. However, just in case. Susan let out a sigh of relief. Just maybe she hadn't ruined everything. And Miss Emily said that I should bring you some breakfast. Justine held out a folded rag as she climbed up through the trap door. She made pancakes with real wheat flour this morning. They were so good. I rolled one up for you. I dribbled in some of the maple syrup. Sort of a soft breadstick. Justine sat on the adjacent bunk. Susan could see that she wanted to talk, but was reluctant to. That was fine with Susan. It gave her uninterrupted time to chew her delicious breakfast. She didn't realize how hungry she was. I wanted to say, Justine began slowly, I am so sorry for what happened. Nothing happened, Susan said curtly. She didn't want to keep thinking about it. The images would return. Clearly, something did. No, it was nothing. They captured us, but we escaped. I don't want to talk about it. Justine ignored Susan's dismissal. My sister's house was broken into years ago. My brother said nothing happened because they did not take anything. They only moved some things around as if looking for something. Nothing was stolen, yes, but my sister was shaken for weeks. Someone had been in her room, touching her things. Her home no longer felt safe. Maybe nothing was stolen, but something definitely happened. Susan's mind wrestled for a rebuttal, but the words refused to form. I worry about you now, Miss Susan. I see my mother's signs, too. Your, your mother? Signs of what? Justine nodded. My mother, when she was fifteen, she was... Uh... Justine stared at the floor. It was a friend of her stepfather. My mother decided to keep me, even though all her friends said that she should have gotten rid of me. It was hard for her, a single mother. Even as a child, I could see the signs in body, the nightmares, trouble with closed spaces, the look in her eyes. She coped as best she could, but she never got over it. Oh, I'm sorry. The words never got over it didn't sit well in Susan's mind. Were the bad dreams going to last a lifetime? Justine nodded without looking up. It's not just that, Susan said. I killed two people. I've never even hurt anyone before. I think I'm supposed to feel terrible, but I don't. More just confused. I'm glad the first guy is dead, but being glad that someone is dead sounds awful. That second guy? It just happened so fast, and without even thinking, I just shot him. 
From what Owen has told me, he was just as bad. Well, maybe, but I didn't know any of that then. He just appeared, and my first thought was to shoot him. Six months ago, couldn't even step on a bug. Now? Susan picked up her jar of olives and rolled it slowly in her fingers. Martin would understand. He had to kill a highway robber. That upset him a lot, too. Justine watched Susan fiddle with the jar. I will be back to talk more if you like. Uh, but now, I must get ready to work on the bridge. We must make much progress today. Mr. Chen said the crossing day has been moved up, just in case. The room felt strangely empty after Justine descended down the ladder. Susan felt some comfort that Justine cared enough to share some of her difficult past. Yet doing so wasn't helping Susan escape her own. The memories, the images, kept trying to push through her mental walls. Only by constant effort was she keeping the door barred. The cabin also began to feel smaller. The air felt stale. I, I need to get outside, Susan thought. The morning was well along, so there was little to worry about drones and infrared. She strode purposefully out of the cabin into the woods before realizing that she had nowhere to go. She leaned against a tree, listening to faint clanking as people hoisted trusses into position on the bridge. It's really cold out here when you're not working, she thought. She recalled the night watches at the Simmons's house. They sat in the box, all bundled in parkas and snow pants, but also beneath blankets to keep the heat in. She headed back to the cabin to fetch her wool blanket and drone tarp. She stopped at the doorway. Something about it felt wrong, like danger waited on the other side. Her mind argued with her body. There's nothing inside of there but blankets, and I need them. She held her breath, closed her eyes, and pushed through the doorway. Once inside, it wasn't as bad as she expected. Nonetheless, she quickly gathered up the blanket and tarp. Going out through the door posed no problems. Sitting beneath the drone tarp, she got fairly comfortable. It felt good to be out in the open air, even if the air was cold enough to sting her cheeks. Susan could hear the soft staccato of the steam engine starting up, and then fade back to a wind-like hiss. Everyone was busy working on the bridge. Everyone but her. This thought soured her already gloomy mood. She tried to focus on the positive instead. She found the road. Work on the bridge was going well. It sounded like the trucks were on schedule. Everything was shaping up to be a success. The food would get to New Hampshire. She smiled at the thought of a truck arriving in Cheshire and Martin seeing it. She wanted to help him. He had done so much for her without even realizing it. She wanted to return and hear his voice again. Something about his voice always calmed her. She desperately wanted calmness again. Could she return? She felt like damaged goods, not the same person that Martin knew and cared about. Now she was a killer. Would the town want a killer around? Was there any value in having her around, even if she wasn't a killer? She still had no useful skills. The town farm was full of people with nothing to offer but hands and feet to do manual labor. If she returned, she would be just another unskilled laborer to feed. The snap of a twig made her jump. Someone was behind her to her left. 
She gripped the handle of her revolver and pulled it into her lap. There was another twig snap. Perhaps they hadn't seen her. She turned the hood of the drone tarp slowly to peer with one eye between the birch trunks. It was Byron, looking large and very obvious. Hello there, Byron said nonchalantly. I figured a snap twig from ten yards away was better than a sudden hello behind your back. He smiled as he walked a few cautious steps closer. Justine said you were in the cabin, but I see you're out for some fresh air. Susan nodded slowly. What now, she thought. She didn't want more consoling. Byron squatted down, a safe dozen feet away. Look, I know you've been through a lot, and you need some time to work through it all, but I have the safety of the whole group to think about. Susan tilted her head slightly. That didn't sound like consoling. What was he talking about? You see, we can't have people up in the buildings during drone passes. It's just too risky. I was careful, she snapped at him. I kept away from the walls and the windows. Hold on, hold on. I believe you were careful, but I couldn't stay below any more. She began her opening argument as an angry attorney. It was like the walls were closing in. The ceiling was coming down. No way I could stay down there. Her voice cracked. Now she was a flustered witness on the stand. I've had this awful dream where I'm drowning, and I still see them. I see their faces. That first one, his, his eyes, they got that black, glassy stare, like the dead raccoon had. I thought I was going to die, but everything just went crazy. And then, why does everyone want to keep talking about it? She could feel her arms starting to tremble. Byron nodded while looking down. Yeah, it's never easy. Talking can help. Keeping it buried inside only makes it worse. He stared at the ground, fidgeting with a long twig for several minutes. She took the pause to calm herself. He meant well. The images weren't his fault. She never used to snap at people. She used to pride herself on always being able to smooth things over, never getting mad. Did that break, too? Over the years, I have had some really troubled campers here, he began. Inner city kids, some bad home lives. Most were so deep in the middle of their trouble that they never had time to sort things out. Some of them wanted to talk about it, some of them didn't. They just wanted some time to think. For them, I'd suggested that they do an Indian thing. Susan squinted at him. He wasn't making sense again. If this was how he consoled people, he was really bad at it. She wanted to be alone, but he kept talking about campers. And what did Indians have to do with anything? Young braves would go off alone into the wilderness to seek a vision. Sometimes I'd suggest that a troubled camper should do a vision quest themselves, spend some time up on a hill beside the chapel. There's a good spot at the corner of Emily's garden, you can see across the river to the hills on the other side. It's a great place to think things through, without distractions. The Indians would say they were getting in touch with the Great Spirit. Well, that's God, of course. Are you saved, Susan? Saved? She blinked at him. She shot the man herself. No one rescued her. Byron was hard to follow when her mind was spinning. Hmm, 
Yes, that kind of answers my question. Some of my campers weren't saved, too. I'll just say this before I go. Everyone hits a problem that's bigger than they are. Doesn't mean you're weak. Some problems are very big, and we're not. But God is bigger than any problem. Byron stood up slowly. He had as fatherly a look as a grizzled lumberjack could muster as he turned to go. Indian thing? Go sit on a hilltop? It all sounded like mystical nonsense. Yet it was appealing to find some place far from people who kept wanting to talk about things she wanted to forget. She gathered up her tarp and blanket and stomped up the hill with a scowl on her face. She sat among a cluster of young trees at the edge of the garden, nestled under her drone cloak. The corner of the garden was a pretty place, even in the brown part of winter. The land wore a rainbow of browns. Burgundy brown blackberry leaves, copper oak leaves, tan cornstalks, yellow grasses. White stripes of birch livened up the gray forest. She could see the hills across the river. They looked blue-gray with darker flecks of pine and spruce. Beyond them were more hills in paler blue-gray. The world seemed overwhelmingly large. The immensity of it made her feel very small. She could feel a sob welling up, but stifled it. She told herself she could handle this without crying. A tear ran down her cheek. The sobs mutinied and took over the ship. She had no clear idea why she was crying. It wasn't for the men she shot. She had convinced herself that they chose their evil path and paid for it. Was it self-pity? Was it for life itself? Life seemed so frail, so easily lost. She came within minutes of losing her own life, so close to being simply gone. What would have happened after that? I used to talk to you when I was little, she said quietly. But you never answered me. I, I don't know what to do. Oh, this is stupid, she blurted out. If there was a... A crow landed on a branch nearby. It squawked loudly, interrupting her. A second crow joined the first. They took up a duet of alternating squawks. Within a minute, over a dozen crows arrived, each with a great deal to say. How am I supposed to sort out my thoughts with all this noise? She thought. The black flock fluttered down to the far edge of the garden. The crows pecked at the frozen ground and argued with each other. Clearly, the crows hadn't seen her in her drone cloak blind. Out of the corner of her left eye, she spotted movement. She didn't turn her head, but moved only her eyes. Someone came from behind the chapel. From the slate-colored coat and brown cap, she could tell it was Owen. She groaned softly. She did not want to talk to anyone else. She wanted to think about the future, not rehash recent events. She was not at all certain she could maintain a polite facade with Owen. She was certainly not going to let anyone see her crying. Owen wasn't walking toward her, but was on a course to walk past her. Why is he walking so weird, she wondered. Her eyes widened when she saw that he held his hunting stick behind his back. He really uses that thing? 
When he told her about hunting with it, she imagined that it was just another one of those lame macho stories intended to dupe naive women into being impressed. But Owen didn't know she was there. So he does hunt with it? He did say he hunted crows. She wondered if she had unknowingly eaten crow. Seldom did Emily announce what the evening's meager portion of meat actually was. Martin was fond of calling his alternate protein sources special chicken. Had Martin hunted crows, too? Owen crouched low amid the dead stalks in the garden, taking slow, mantis-like steps. His hand with the stick was cocked behind his back. The crows hadn't taken notice of him. They'll see you, Owen. Throw it now. He seemed close enough, but ignored her mental advice. He kept inching forward, like a video being played one frame at a time. The crows were busy fighting over something. Susan could see Owen slowly reeling back. She knew he was about to throw, but the suddenness of his throw still startled her. The stick twirled like helicopter blades. Susan held her breath. You missed! You threw it too high! The crows, suddenly seeing, or perhaps hearing, the whirling stick, jumped into the air. They stretched out their wings for a big downbeat and escape. The stick smacked against two crows and deflected into a third. The rest of the flock flapped awkwardly to gain altitude. They squawked and cawed as much as they flapped. The three crows flopped on the ground as if they had forgotten which way was up. Owen sprinted over and stepped on the head of one. He jumped onto the head of the second. The third had gotten to its feet and leapt into the air. Owen swatted it down with his forearm. He grabbed the fallen crow by the neck and whipped. He got three with one throw? Susan realized her mouth was hanging open. After retrieving his stick, Owen gathered up his harvest, carrying the crows in a bunch by their feet. Susan shook her head slightly as she stared at his cluster of meat harvest. It's nothing but a dumb stick. The cawing of the surviving flock receded into the distance. Owen was gone. The dormant garden looked exactly as it had before, a silent landscape painting rendered in browns and grays. It was just a stick. Why can't I do that? One of the challenges going forward was how to portray the anxiety that Susan would feel as the traumatic events intruded into her life. Being just text, the book didn't do anything in particular. I'm not sure there is a way, with just black ink on a page. As the story's creator, I always felt that the just text part came up a little short of what was in my head. Susan wouldn't think about the trauma. Instead, it would rise up, unbidden and relentless, interrupting whatever normal life thing she was doing. The repressed trauma seemed to have a will of its own. This audio version of the book gave me an opportunity to introduce a, a background of a discord tone to give listeners a clue to that rising, wordless, anxious feeling as it intruded into whatever she was doing. And I'd like to add an author's note on that scene near the end where Susan is sitting at the corner of the garden. She started out sincerely asking God for help. She was lamenting about having no valuable skills. Even though her rationalistic side cut herself off, she still got an answer. God sent her some crows. 
That wasn't the sort of answer she was expecting, of course. Most people, when they ask God for something, they expect the answer to come as a sort of deep, Charlton Heston sort of voice. Often, however, the answer is subtle and easy to miss, but the answers are there just the same. Watching Owen hunt with his stick, she saw her answer, even if she didn't realize it. As we close out the year 2022, I'd like to thank all of you who supported my work here by buying me coffees at Buy Me a Coffee, or becoming members at Buy Me a Coffee or Patreon. The financial support is great, of course, helping cover the cost of the podcast hosting and all, but your support, comments, and messages have been a big encouragement. I appreciate that. Thank you, supporters. You're the best. <laughs>